I just wanted to affirm your, uh, your word about God's love this morning. Um, I've got an Audible subscription, and Audible yells at me whenever I don't use my, my tokens for a new book. So this morning I decided that I was going to get a new Brennan Manning book, um, and he's a you know, prolific Christian author. And the book that I selected was um, The Tremendous Love of Jesus, I think is the name of it, or something like that. Um, I don't remember. I just started listening to it this morning. But in the foreword of that, it talked about God's love. And what it said about God's love is God can't give us any more or any less love because his identity is love. That's who he is. So um, just kind of to steer our thinking about the love of God, it's not about getting love from God. It is about, it's about his identity. It's who he is. He is that. Um, so he can't grant us any more or any less of something. It's, that is him. Um, and so I felt compelled this morning to share whenever, uh, I almost shared out loud right there, but that's not, this is not that kind of church. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I, but I knew I'd have a time, so I just figured I'd wait a second. So, um, but that's what I wanted to share this morning. That's who God is. God is love. So it's not about getting something from him. It's about embracing him. And so, yeah, I just really appreciated that this morning. So, thanks. Y'all settle in. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. If you look at Genesis chapter 25, you're going to see a story that we're familiar with, a story of a man named Abraham, who God made a promise to. Kids, anybody remember what the promise was that God made to Abraham? Luke, go ahead. Okay. Hope you guys heard that. The promise is what, that, that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand on the beaches. But there's something that happens in Abraham's life. We know this story. This was not part of the message today, but the Lord is doing what he does, and I got I to gotta rope us in. God made a promise. We started with that idea this morning with the children's messages. God made a promise. And Abraham and his wife are old, beyond the years of being able to have children. And they began to lose hope because their circumstances of their life did not speak the same message that God had spoken. And so we, we'll, we'll fast forward in the, in the story and God does what he promised. And he gives Abraham a son whose name is Isaac. And Isaac is treasured. But then the Lord tells Abraham to do something that just seems irrational, impossible, heartless. He says, I want you to take this treasured son and I want you to sacrifice him for me. And so Abraham, because he trusts the Lord, because he loves the Lord, I can't even fathom what that conversation might look like. But he goes up on the mountain, and in, in Genesis chapter 25, it tells the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up the mountain, and Isaac says, but dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, because he knows God, he said, the Lord will provide. And we know the end of that story, that the Lord does provide. 
And I can't help this morning but think about all that the Lord has been saying. The band prays every morning um, before church. And we began to just, Leah said, is there anything specific we can pray about? And everybody began to kind of share a little bit about their week and the things that they were struggling with and things they needed prayer for. And Leah began to share with us this message of grace that God has been speaking to her all week. And today we're going to talk about something that's not fun to talk about. We're going to talk about sin today. And how amazing is it is that God has spent all morning lavishing His grace on us. Helping us to understand that He is Jehovah Jireh. That He is the provider of all that we need. Today we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Hebrews. Last week you'll remember... We looked at the comparison that the author makes between Moses and Jesus. And Moses is a faithful servant. And it's as great as Moses was, which I just want to remind us to think about the Lord's grace. Because Moses did some stuff that was pretty messed up. Right? And yet, he is remembered as this great man of faith. Same thing could be said of David. Did some messed up stuff. But yet, he is remembered as one that had a heart for God like no other. And so today as we talk about our own sin, as we think about what that looks like, what the Lord is speaking to all of us this morning is that we need to remember His grace. That our sin does not make God love us any less because the enemy, that serpent, will be in our ear this morning convincing us that we are not good enough for God if we allow Him to. But God has been gracious with us this morning in sharing His message with us. So last week we looked at the difference between Moses the servant and Jesus the son. And that Moses was faithful, but he was just a servant. And he had to operate in the parameters in which God gave him. But Jesus is the son. Jesus knew exactly what God wanted him to do at all times because he himself is also God. And so he's even more faithful. And what we landed on last week is that we need to trust Jesus, we need to trust the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us as believers, that He will guide us, that He will take care of us. What the reality is, is that because of sin, we often find ourselves putting confidence in places where it doesn't belong. And as a result, there are stories in our lives, things that we've experienced, things that we've done, that we don't want to share with anybody. Stories that are embarrassing, stories that when we think about them, cause us to feel things like guilt and shame. And today, as we look at our passage, I was reminded of, I don't know if you guys saw this, um, but you can Google it later, and you're welcome in advance for the laughs. But just go on YouTube and, and Google the worst Zoom meeting. Have any, anybody seen that? It happened over in England? If you haven't seen it, I'll give you the picture. There's a bunch of people that are on some committee. They live in England. And there are people in the meeting who have power and people who don't have power. And the ones that don't have the power are pretending as if they do have the power and is kicking people out of the meeting. It is a mess. It's hilarious. I don't remember if there's any language in it, so don't watch it in front of your kids. But it is really, really funny. But often our lives are representative of that. Even as believers, all of us experience these moments of weakness that we're not proud about. We, we don't rush headlong into those things. Though. We were talking about this this morning with the band, that, that often the things that we're really struggling with kind of creep up on us. Like we feel like we're doing pretty good, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's sin, and we're caught in the middle of it, and we're going, dang it, I did it again. And it's not where we want to be, and we're going to address that this morning. 
But we need to understand that, that even though we've been made a new creation as a result of our relationship with Jesus, we still struggle with sin. Sin has not left this world, and we live in the world. And we have a, the tendency to turn away from Jesus instead of turning to him. And today we're going to see the, the author exhort the church to encourage the church to stay away from that. But I want to remind us, I want to start this morning with a passage from Romans chapter 7, verse 15 that we're all familiar with. Paul talked about his struggle with sin. And he says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. I quote that all the time, and I'm sure you think about it often. Because when we find ourselves in the middle of sin, we're like, this is not where I wanted to be today. Our struggles are not new, and that's good news for us. Because it means we're not the first ones to falter through life, to struggle with sin. And so today we're going to see the author encouraging the church to not be like Israel. He's going to begin today with um, this negative example. So read with me verses 7 through 12 in Hebrews chapter 3. And then we're going to, we're going to, we, church, we got a lot of work ahead of us this morning. So I need y'all to stay plugged in. We're going to look at a lot of scripture, but it's good and it's necessary for today. Okay. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me tried me and saw my works just side note as a parent have you ever said see what happens go ahead kid try it i got some nods in the back okay let's continue on and saw my works for 40 years therefore i was provoked to anger with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways so i swore in my anger they will not enter my rest Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So if you're reading this in your Bible, you're going to notice that, that the second half of verse 7 and through verse 11 are indented. Or if you were watching it on the screen, those words were in bold. But, and, and this is telling us that the author is quoting part of Psalm 95. And many believe that this psalm was part of the normal liturgy of the Judaism, of Judaism. And by liturgy, we mean it's something that they read regularly. If you think about it, this, this moment, this exodus from Egypt is probably the most significant event that ever happened in the history of that people. And in that most significant moment, we see failure after failure after failure in the wilderness. And they read it often to remind them that their lack of faith cost the lives of an entire generation. Church, that's significant. We know those stories. We've, we've re- we went through the book of Exodus a couple of years ago, and we're going to spend some time back in that this morning, kind of wrapping our heads around what the author is trying to communicate to the church. This pattern of disobedience began almost immediately when they leave Egypt. And upon entering the wilderness. Let's look back at Exodus chapter 15. We're going to see, if you, if you read the first part of that, you're going to see this is the part where they've just crossed the Red Sea. So God has delivered them. They watched Pharaoh's army drowned in the ocean that they just walked across on dry land. They're standing on the seashore watching the waves settle. And Moses and Miriam write this incredible song. And they are singing God's praises. As they should, right? 
You see an army chasing you and God drowns it in the ocean, that is a moment for celebration because your lives have literally just been saved. Let's pick up in verse 22 through 24. So they just sing this song. If you look at it in, in your Bible, they finish the song, and then it says in verse 22, Then Moses led Israel from, on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter, and that's why it was named Marah. And the people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? If you look up that word grumbled, it means to speak under your breath. Is that ever positive when someone speaks under their breath at you? Never. It communicates the idea of, of frustration, of attitude. They had, they had just sung God's praises three days prior, and then they're going to catch an attitude three days later when they're a little bit thirsty. Now, it doesn't say that people were dying from thirst. They had provisions, but the promise of God did not look like what they expected. So God takes the initiative. If you go on in verse 25, it says, So he cried out to the Lord, speaking of Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it in the water, the water became drinkable. And the Lord made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah. And he tested them there. And he said, listen to this church, this is a promise of the Lord. If you will carefully obey the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So God sets forth this regulation. He defines for the Israelites the kind of relationship that he wants to have with them. And he says, listen, if you will pay close attention to what I say through my servant Moses and Aaron, if you will listen to me, I will take care of you. If we're going to put that in layman's terms, God is saying, obey me and I will care for you. And that's a pretty good deal because they're in the desert. But look at verse 27. He says, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms and they camped by the water. I, I shared this with you when we went through Exodus, but some of you weren't here for that. Elam is five miles from Mara. Okay? There's a lesson here for us. I just did some quick math this weekend. And if I'm generous in how fast they were able to move those two million people, they were maybe three hours away. Not just from water, but from shade in the desert. You see, often church, we, we have an idea in our mind of what we think God is doing. But life gets hard. We get frustrated, we get tired, and we give up too soon. And we say, God, I thought you said you were going to do something here. And God says, okay, fine. I'll give you a little water to drink. But often we don't stick it out long enough to see that just a few hours away is more than we could ever ask for. There's this pervasive idea in our culture that when things get difficult, we should just throw in the towel and do something else. I've said for years, I think that's why the divorce rate is so high in the United States because often, and we see this happen over and over again, marriage gets hard and people are like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to go find somebody else that loves me. The love is still there. I remember, I, I was thinking about this this week. I did CrossFit for a little while, years ago, and I remember doing a workout. I don't think Carrie was my coach. I think it was somebody else. But 
They, what are those things, Carrie, where you go down and you do a push-up and then you jump? What's a burpee? Is that what that's called? We were doing burpees and kettlebell swings and all kinds of stuff. And then we had to go run a lap. It was like a half a mile or something. And I remember feeling like I was dying. And I get up from my last burpee and I'm trying to run. And the coach is like, catch your breath in the run. <laughs> what? We need a CrossFit coach in our lives that says, look, I know life is hard, but catch your breath. During the hardness. And it doesn't always make sense in our minds, but we got to remember that God created us to live in a relationship with Him, and His power is our source of strength, not our own. You see, we get tired, we get frustrated, we get exhausted, and the problem that we're facing is that we're relying on our own strength, our own ability, our own resolution to see it completed, and we've We've put our, our trust in that instead of in God. And this story for Israel is not over. If you read on into chapter 16, you'll see again, Israel grumbles. Again, God provides. Look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 16. It says, the entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt... So they're 45 days in, 45 days from God delivering them from slavery, from watching Pharaoh's army drown in the ocean, from singing God's praises, from God providing shade and water in the desert, 45 days, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. You know, we, we read that story and we think, 40, a month and a half? That's it? That's all it took? For them to go from, God just saved me to, I wish you would have let me die in slavery? What's going on? What's going on in their minds? And then we see that, that God provides. And what's he give them? Quail and manna. This is just a thought that popped in my head. This is just a little side note, a little bonus from Will. I don't know if you've ever had grilled birds, but it's real good. And manna is described as sweet bread, which in my mind relates to Hawaiian rolls. If you've ever had a slider with some grilled birds, and I'm sorry, everybody's hungry now. But God, here's the point, is that God didn't just give them some trash to eat. Quail is good. And I don't know what manna was, but Hawaiian rose is pretty awesome too. So when God provides for them the first time, not only does he give them water, but he gives them shade to sit in. And the second time he provides for them, he gives them something good to eat. But they didn't listen. On the seventh day, they went out. Uh, so God, and this is an important part, God tells them, I'm going I'm to send out the quail and the manna for six days. Only gather what you need for that day, except for the sixth day, get enough for the seventh as well, because that's the day of rest. Okay, God gives them various, I'm going to give you all you need, but only gather as much as you need on each day for that day, except for the sixth day, and gather for two. And so, they don't listen. On the seventh day, a bunch of them go out to gather, and there's nothing, and now they're complaining about it. And God says in verse 28, he says, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? How long? 
And then we move on to chapter 17, and God moves them again, and they get thirsty, and they grumble. And again, God provides water. Look at verse 7 in chapter 17. It says, He named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? A couple of months in, delivered from slavery, the Egyptians gave them all their possessions, anything they'd asked for. They go up to the Red Sea. God parts it. They walk on dry land. Pharaoh's army follows them. Sea falls in on them, drowns, they sing God's praises, they grumble, God provides. They grumble, God provides. They grumble, God provides. And then God says, how long? How long? Church, this is the temptation that all of us face. We see life circumstances around us and we go, God, I know that you said you were going to take care of me, but it doesn't feel like it at the moment. I'm a little tired, I'm a little thirsty. But God still provides for us because of his grace. We see it happen over and over and over again in Israel's story. The author is warning the new believers in this church that if they're not careful, the same thing is going to happen to them. And the same thing can happen to us. I read this in, in one of my commentaries this week. And it was just, it was one of those like just drop the mic moments for me. The author said, what appeared on a particular occasion as a symptom developed into a settled habit of mind. What appeared as a symptom developed into a settled habit of mind. Lee even mentioned it this morning. We are creatures of habit. Once we do something the same way a few times, it's nearly impossible to change that behavior. This is a cautionary word, not just for the church, but for us. God is speaking to us this morning. We must be careful. Watch carefully how we respond to everything. The question we have to ask ourselves, are we falling back on our own logic like we talked about last week? Are we falling back on our own wisdom? Or are we trusting and seeking God to reveal what He is doing? Yesterday morning in my quiet time, Blackaby referenced um, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, where it says, All a person's ways seem right to him, But the Lord weighs his motives. All the ways, all a person's ways seem right to him. I want you to think about that for a minute. I think about that often, never in this particular context. But when we're arguing about something, what is the assumption? That you're right. And we take that same attitude to God. Blackaby says in that commentary, he says, Many things cause us to do what we do. We can be motivated by good things such as love for God, compassion, generosity, and faith. Or our actions can come from an unhealthy motive such as pride, insecurity, ambition, lust, greed, guilt, anger, fear, and hurt. It is even possible to do the best things based on the worst motives. When the Lord measures our motives, He looks for one thing, love. All that we do should proceed from our love for God and for others. Take time to look past your actions to what lies behind them. Ask God to show you what he sees when he's examining your motives. You know, I, I, I reference American culture often. I reference the church globally often. And always, it seems, in a negative connotation. But I, I want us to remember that the reason 
that the Lord has us examining the church and examining our church, examining our own motives is because we live in a sinful world. And unfortunately, because we're creatures of habit, we adopt traditions, we adopt modes of operation just like Israel did. And one day, our children, or our great-grandchildren, or our great-great-grandchildren are going to look back on the church and go, what were they thinking? And we can look at our own lives, we can examine our own lives, just like Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2 says, and think, no, I'm doing good. Right? But at the end of the day, the Lord is going to weigh our motives. I love your word this morning about we didn't enter a courtroom today. And so I don't want you to let the enemy tell you in this moment that you're not good enough because that's just not true. But we do have to talk about the reality that we live in a sinful world and there is sin still in our flesh. The author of Hebrews is reminding the church of Israel's past failings with the intent that they would be encouraged not to do the same thing. And that's the same encouragement we receive today. is to look back at the story of Israel, look back at our own lives and the places where we know we made mistakes. And to encourage us not to repeat those same patterns. I don't think the purpose of the author of Hebrews writing this was to conjure up an emotional response. Because those don't work. They don't last. We know that. You can feel, I, I signed up for this thing called the Forrest Gump 500 at the beginning of the year. And it was a challenge to run 500 miles in a year. And I was like, yes, I'm going yes, to do it. I think I've run six miles in this year. I was emotionally motivated to do something that I thought would be a lot of fun. And then life got busy and it wasn't important. And so I haven't done it. Not that I don't want to. I like to run. It just hadn't been on the top of the list. And the same thing happens for us. We come in on a Sunday morning, we go to a life group where we spend time with the Lord and we get emotionally motivated by something. We think, yes, this, I'm going to do this. And then we don't. I don't think he wrote this to conjure up an emotional response, but rather just to provide some data. You know, we talk about in my industries, we talk about data a lot. We talk about the importance of looking at the past to inform the future. Right now there's a big argument, a big conversation going on about electric vehicles. I'm sure you've seen some of that on the news. Big group of people are saying it's the future, it's coming right now. Big group of people are saying it's never going to happen, doesn't work. But what we've got to look at is the data, right? And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing for us, is he's giving us some data. He's informing us about the human condition, right? That we're born in sin. And then it's real hard to break that habit. All of us need the same reminder. From time to time, we need to look at the data and realize that the same condition exists in our lives that existed in Israel's. The sin may look different. The, way, the words that we say and the way that we say it may be look different, but it's still sin. We're fallible. We're fragile. And at our very best, we are unworthy. We need Jesus. He's what makes us worthy. We need Him at every moment. It's only His Spirit that can improve our condition. I titled this message today, To Hold Fast to Jesus. Look at verse 12 with me in chapter 3 again. <clears throat> it says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We see Jesus discussing this same idea with the disciples when he's explaining the parable of the sower. Look at, at Luke chapter 8, verse 13. It says, 
And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. There's an emotional response. But having no root, these, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. When we read that story in church, I want to warn us all to be careful to say, no, not me. I wouldn't do that. Because Peter said the same thing. He said, no, God, no, Lord, not me. I will never turn away from you. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 through 33, Jesus said to them that night, tonight, all of you will fall away of me because, for, because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, if, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Again, an emotional response. You see, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we look at the good things that we've done in our lives, and there are good things, and we start to feel pretty good about ourselves. We think, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. I got some nice compliments this week from, from some of you guys, and I really appreciate that. But I have to be careful because I take those compliments and go, huh, I'm pretty good at this preacher thing. But I'm not. These are examples that all of us need to see. There are many examples in the scriptures of those that, that say that they are followers, but they're not following anybody but themselves. Paul addresses it, if you, want, if you want to go back and look at it later, Acts chapter 15, verse 38, or 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul is addressing this very thing. The, the, the one in Acts is he's having an argument with Barnabas about Barnabas wanting to bring somebody with him. He's like, no, I'm not bringing that dude with me. He didn't finish the journey last time. He's not going to finish it this time. Because the guy was emotionally motivated. It happened in the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament. And it still happens today. So the question remains. We find ourselves asking. How do we ensure that we don't become yet another example of unfaithfulness? How do we not become just another point of data in the same story? What's the answer? We hold fast to Jesus. Jesus is enough. You are Jaira, you are enough. Jaira, you are enough, and I will be content in every circumstance. You are Jaira, you are enough. I was talking with a student last week, and we were talking about the problem of sin and how do we deal with it. We know from Scripture that God calls us to Himself, right? Scripture is very clear that no man goes to God on his own, but God calls, him, calls us to Himself. We also know from Scripture we talked about it this morning in the kids stuff, that all of us are born in sin. That is our condition at birth. So how do we deal with our sin? Well, we know that Jesus defeated it, right? We know that. So how do we keep from repeating the same mistakes that Israel did? When sin is revealed in our life, we hold fast to Jesus and let him deal with our sin instead of just having an emotional response it's okay if emotions are tied to it but if that's what we're relying on to make the change in our life we're gonna fail every time so when sin is revealed we hold fast to jesus and let him deal with our sin the truth for us all is that we don't want to be like israel was right we read those stories we read the stories of israel we read the story of of peter and we go, I don't want to be like that. 
When the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, a a psalm that was well known to them, that was used often to try to emotionally motivate people to not do the same mistakes. They were familiar with it. And just like everybody that's ever heard that, they don't want to. We don't want to sin. We don't get up in the morning and think, what can I do today to sin against God? That's not how our days start. We don't want to fall short. We don't want to turn back too soon, right? We don't want to get to a place in our lives where we just say, God, I've had enough, only to find out that if we just turn the corner, there's more than we could ever hope for. We've got to cry out to Jesus and tell Him that we see the sin that He's revealing and then ask Him to work in us to defeat that sin. This was in Upmost this morning, and I just, I couldn't believe it when I, when I read it. It says, your will agrees with God, okay? Your will agrees with God. But in your flesh, there is a nature that reminds you, that renders you powerless to do what you know you ought to do. When the Lord initially comes into contact with our conscience, the first thing our conscience does is to awaken our will. And our will always agrees with God. Oswald saying what we see in Scripture that we want to live according to what God's called us to. Yet you say, but I don't know if my will is in agreement with God. Look to Jesus and you will find that your will and your conscience are in agreement with Him every time. What causes you to say, I will not obey? Is something less deep and penetrating than your will. It is a perversity or stubbornness. And they are never in agreement with God. The most profound thing in a person is his will, not sin. You see, our will is activated by the Holy Spirit. But we also have to let him control it. I want to to close out today with the rest of Romans chapter 7. Because Paul understood this struggle. And he reveals to us what the answer is. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to get lost in his wordiness and not see it. So I'm going to to encapsulate this at the end. But I want you to see this in Scripture. So you know that I'm not making it up. Romans chapter 7 verse 15 through 8 2. It says, For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, But it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For my inner self, I I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but my flesh, the law of sin. 
Therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul is saying this struggle that we all have is in our flesh. And it will always be there. And the only answer that we have is Jesus. His Spirit sets us free from death and from sin. We must hold fast to Jesus. He is enough. He's all we need. And I want to echo that message of grace today. That as we face our sin, as we harness the power of the Holy Spirit, we say, God, I see the sin and I don't want it in my life anymore. Show me what to do. His grace is sufficient. It's more than enough. Let's pray. Jesus, I am, I am personally so thankful for your message of grace today. Father, as I struggle with sin in my own life, the comfort of knowing that you love me regardless. It doesn't make my sin okay. It doesn't give me permission to do what I want. But I can rest in the fact that you are the one who's going to give me the strength to overcome it. It's only you. It's not anything in me. And that even in that process, in that struggle, in that failure, you love me. Jesus, I'm just can't say thank you enough. Father, it's my, my, my hope and my prayer that this message resonates with your people. That as we move forward with the rest of this day and next week, that as we encounter sin as you reveal in our lives, that our, our knee-jerk reaction would be to turn to you and to ask you to deal with it in our lives. Father, please give us that desire. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.